1: Happy Monday. If you missed it yesterday, we did our 15 and 60 mailbag on the Western Conference. That was a a really fun one. Got some great questions there, some good reactions to that one as well, so... Definitely give that a listen. John Hollinger and I recorded Hollinger Duncan today. We talked about the Kenny Atkinson thing. We talked about how front offices try to deal with the media, especially when they think the media is uh, reporting things unfairly. We talked about what's going to keep the coaching staffs of uh, some of the best teams in the NBA up during the playoffs. And then, of course, we eliminated some teams from the playoffs and uh, gave a little post-mortem on their season. So that was fun. And let's uh, get started here. Talk a little bit about... Let's do some news first, actually. That's probably the, the place to start here. And obviously, the biggest is the coronavirus And the news came out today that Santa Clara County, which is not obviously an NBA team there, but that is in the Bay Area, it's where San Jose is, they have banned gatherings of over 1,000 people uh, as of Monday night, and that will include San Jose Sharks games. And so you'd have to imagine that, at a minimum, San Francisco won't be far behind them.
2: It seems probable at the moment, and we'll have to see what the other potential ways around that are. You know, the idea of playing games without fans. You know, there would still be a lot of people there because you need to put on the television broadcast and have all the support staff for the players and everything else like that. And that presumably could be a part of the, the call. There's a league call that's going on on Wednesday to discuss further action and, and, I mean, when you consider these kinds of things, I mean, of course, you can also see what's going on in Italy where they're going to have to come up with at least one branch, maybe multiple branches of solutions here. And, and one of the early things we saw was limiting limiting media access temporarily, you know, like not, not allowing media locker room access, and we'll see like, how, how that affects things. And then there's going to be some distance in the interview rooms and things like that. But the real big question is, like, are they going to have the games? If they have the games, what is it going to look like?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I... My guess would be that by the time they have that call on Wednesday, at least in San Francisco, they won't have a choice, that they will not be. And the Warriors play tomorrow night against the Clippers, then they play Thursday night at home against the Nets, then they go on the road for some time. Their next home game after that isn't until March 25th. But I think we're going to reach an inflection point by Wednesday where the choice is either going to be play games without fans, play games somewhere other than in san francisco or just postpone the season entirely or postpone games entirely and and i don't think they can really postpone games effectively at this point in time so i did a little twitter poll i've only got about two thousand votes in it now but i asked fans whether they'd rather put at least fans being my followers which of course are not emblematic of all nba fans but when asked whether you'd rather the season be postponed or to play an empty arena 75 percent of people saying uh, who have responded to this and are my followers obviously said they'd rather play in empty arenas but that obviously has concerns as well for the safety of the traveling parties the broadcasters uh, and the players the coaching staffs uh, as well because if they're traveling they still uh, could very easily come into contact with the virus and obviously if any players were to get the virus then you can't have them playing against other players and that would be a a major concern and so at that point you really have no choice but to postpone things so it's uh i wouldn't want to be Sitting in the NBA's offices right now, trying to figure out what to do. But it seems like, regardless of what happens, we're probably going to be looking at a reduction in revenue, reduction for the of the cap of next year. And I mean, obviously, I'm an NBA journalist here, so I'm talking about the ramifications of the NBA. There are far larger ramifications than that. But I, I since you're listening to this for my NBA analysis, I'm going to limit my analysis to talking about what this means for the NBA. There are plenty of other very capable journalists discussing what this means for the state and the country and the world right now
2: i think so, yeah I, I think we could jump from that to brooklyn and you talked about it a lot with john but we have to at least talk a little bit about the ouster the mutual parting of ways of kenny atkinson there's some great reporting from the athletic out uh shams Trania, and i believe it's alex Schiefer yeah. about
1: the, the athletic.com slash caps race by the way yes
2: very much so and really it's I mean, so it, it always is funny in these circumstances where it's like, well, Kyrie and KD didn't advocate for Atkinson's ouster, However, it didn't seem like they were, they didn't particularly wanted to play for him next year. So it's like, they didn't have to say it. You know, that's sort of a circumstance. And I think Atkinson, the one of the things I really liked about the piece was it got into the TikTok of how some of this happened and how Atkinson could see the dynamic shifting and went, well, if that's where it's going to go, then I don't want to be a part of it. And assuming that reporting is correct, kudos to him for seeing the writing on the wall getting out of it ahead of you know it's better to leave something before it becomes messier especially publicly and and i think that makes it makes his chances of getting a next job whenever that is. Not that he was going to have a problem with it anyway. He did a very good job in Brooklyn. It makes that an easier sales pitch that you didn't. he didn't get caught up in it as much. So I, I wonder how the coaching carousel is going to work this year. And my instinct right now is that the next job eventually will be filled by somebody who is not currently head coaching an NBA team. Ty Lue, somebody you've mentioned, I think that's a very reasonable name. Um, And so that changes a couple of different things. But I also think if Kenny Atkinson wants a job this year, he will get a job this year.
1: Yeah, and I talked a a little bit more about it. John gave his thoughts as well uh, on that pod, so I won't reiterate anything other than my usual in a lot of these coast firings, which is deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. Atlanta, we're going to talk about their game against Charlotte, which uh, turned into a crazy (laughs) double overtime game. Uh, the, The... Despite your uh, poll question, the inevitable heat death of the universe did not come to pass before the end of Hawks Hornets today, Uh, but Clint Capella still going to be out another two weeks from a couple of days ago with that plantar fasciitis, and especially given the fact that it's a chronic injury, that it requires a lot of rest, it, it would seem prudent at this point to shut him down for the season. Why give him a setback going into the offseason, let him just fully rest. I mean, it's such a hard injury to kick. Uh, once it started and
2: and they it's not like they're in the desperately pulling information phase of this like they don't need to see Clint capella in order to in, figure out how they're going to invest i mean i guess it could affect the extension negotiations with john collins but outside of that i mean i don't think and especially considering where their season is going i don't think that there's that it, the the information they would glean from that especially if he's still recovering would be super valuable
1: yeah here also out another two weeks uh, with the knee injury that he sustained before he was traded to know what if any future he would have uh in Atlanta another player who I think it's more important for his team to see is Kevon Looney he will miss another three weeks Steve Kerr was adamant that they are going to try and get him back get him into a rhythm before the season ends but with this hip soreness recall that he's had a couple of hip surgeries already one on each hip or earlier in his career that is not a good sign he, it has just been an absolute struggle since uh, he suffered that chest injury um, due to the bowling ball shoulder of Kawhi Leonard back in the NBA finals and just has not been able to get healthy has had some slight moments of competence later on in the year but I do think that the Warriors want to have some idea that he can contribute next year or he could very easily just be trade bait in the offseason along with one of the assets that they have or they just have to even if he's not traded they have to acknowledge that they can't necessarily count on him for next year and they may may need to fortify the center position when they wouldn't have otherwise
2: yeah and they don't have a ton of tools to get better so you know the, the it would all trade exception and the mid-level so if they have to use some of the mid-level let's say on a center then that that changes their resources for everything else another team that has an important return actually a series of them is the memphis grizzlies the grizzlies have justice winslow who has not played a second for them he is hopefully returning within the next week from his back issue. Jaron Jackson Jr. is hopefully returning as well. He's been dealing with left knee soreness. And then it's a longer timeline for uh, for Brandon Clark. He has a quad strain. And he's pro- they say he's progressing well and is expected to return this season, but the season is very different from this week. So we'll have to see. But Memphis is in that fight for the... Eight seed out west and getting reinforcements back, and also getting the chance to evaluate Justice Winslow's fit with all these players, getting a chance to integrate him this season. I think that is i that is much preferable to having to wait until
1: next season. Yeah, I'm very interested to see how they defend and how he shoots the ball when he comes back, and how they use him. He he operated with the ball in his hands a lot, but uh, Miami didn't have a John Morant, uh, so uh, I want to see what we get out of him. And they've got Tyus Jones as well, so how, how to use him will be an interesting challenge for Taylor Jenkins. Carl Anthony Towns is going to miss. Oh wait! A before further... we move on, we oh, should yeah. talk
2: about Jonte Porter.
1: Oh yeah, yeah sorry, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, so this was interesting. Porter, the younger brother of Michael Porter, is extremely young. In his first year at Missouri, but then suffered a torn ACL. Was attempting to rehab, suffered another torn ACL, but entered the draft next last year. Nonetheless, was not drafted, and so he has been rehabbing. Apparently. is approaching the point where he might be able to play again, and some teams have been monitoring him, according to Woj. But Memphis signs him, and what I really liked about it is Memphis had used up their full mid-level exception, and they had the biannual, but uh, that and the minimum could only give him two years so you basically are got this year which is a punt and then you would have next year and then he goes into restricted free agency so what they decided to do with his agent mark barlson which i thought was very smart is sign him now and then you give him a team option for next year so you're not beholden to anything you can decline that team option if you want to make him a restricted free agent and then they could sign him for up to four additional years using the mid-level most likely uh because they don't project to have cap space now uh, and get an idea of where he's at or you can just move on from him at that point if you don't want the roster spot or you can just hold on to him uh, at the minimum for next year as well if you want to exercise the yeah and make him restricted the following year yeah so i thought it was good creativity from uh, the memphis front office and uh, his agent mark bartlestein Now we can move to Minnesota where that fractured wrist of Carl Anthony Towns, it will leave him out at least two more weeks. They are pursuing a non-operative strategy for his recovery, although that always does kind of make you think that if that doesn't work, then there would be an operative strategy. But I know Towns really wants to get back to play with D'Angelo Russell. This is one time where at least the flattened lottery odds should help to not pr- provide too much of an incentive to just shut him down. Uh, and we'll see whether Towns, in fact, can return. I, for one, really want to see what it looks like with Beasley, Hernan Gomez, Russell, and Towns all together. We may not get to see that. We may not get to see that in uh, real basketball. Uh, uh, again, I mean, we're, uh, by the way, everything we're talking about here assumes that the season is going to go on uh, as normal. Obviously, that could change a whole host of things. But uh, so that that's not great for Minnesota. Um, let's take a quick break here and we can get to the rest of the news in a second all right Danny what else we got here
2: let's go to the walking wounded in San Antonio DeJounte Murray suffered a calf strain during their loss to the Cavs, and doesn't have a timetable Uh, Lonnie Walker is dealing with a left shin contusion we don't have a timeline yet on him but Greg Popovich implied that it could be a while it's apparently painful for him to walk and LaMarcus Aldridge is doubtful for their game against the Mavericks
1: Yeah. And that's kind of too bad. Walker, you would like to have seen him play more in what's turning into a lost season now for San Antonio. This injury to Aldridge was really the death knell for them. And especially considering the low bar to get in with the eighth seed, for them to not even be competitive for that is, of course, a massive disappointment. And it's really about development at this point and so murray and walker maybe two of their three most important prospects gonna miss some significant time here it sounds like towards the end it is a bummer for san antonio fans for toronto marcus soul made his return from a second left hamstring injury on sunday did not play in their victory over utah which we're going to talk about in a moment fred van vliet has yet to return but he is shooting for Saturday, uh, with that shoulder injury most likely against his old coach, Dwayne Casey, and the Pistons also potentially a suitor for him in free agency this year.
2: For the Philadelphia 76ers, we heard, we've we heard that Joel Embiid could return this week, and we have heard nothing on Ben Simmons dealing with that back issue.
1: Yeah, uh, no analysis there other than uh, that's bad. Um For Phoenix, DeAndre Aiden has missed time since he suffered what looked like a pretty bad sprain in that game against Toronto last week, but he's actually been upgraded to questionable against the Blazers on Tuesday. And those aforementioned Blazers, Dwight Janes of NBC Sports Northwest reporting that Jody Allen will sell the team, that she's not that into basketball. The Blazers are. Were projected to be worth 1.85 billion in the latest Forbes roundup, and that'll be interesting. I and mean, we haven't seen an NBA team get sold in a while, and
2: well, and the last one didn't work out super well for
1: that team, <laughs> in our opinion. <laughs>
2: And but it, it that is a reminder. Well, no,
1: how, no. Well, uh, Joe Tsai would would probably. Be oh the, yeah, the that's Most right. recent one, actually. I
2: mean, yeah, that because that option. I I was thinking of it as yeah. that was after, but the or that was before because the option existed. But you're right, that was the most recent transfer. Um, but yeah, I mean, Fertitta isn't is a useful example in terms of how it. You know, one of the ways that it can go wrong. And I mean, I I know Blazers fans appreciate how central Paul Allen was to everything that happened there in the Pacific Northwest, and now currently is the only team in the Pacific Northwest, and so the hope is that the the next owner whoever that may be will will do will do we'll do similar things but we can we cannot be sure of that to go from the pacific northwest to the southeast of the country of orlando evan forney has a sprained ucl and it could keep him out for an extended period of time it seems like even without him the magic are destined to still make the playoffs just because nobody else is is really putting up a good fight in the east but it's going to be some tough basketball to watch in orlando for the remainder of the season
1: yeah for for those who don't know the UCL ulnar collateral ligament that's your elbow. Yes. Uh Tyler Hero has resumed on court workouts. He's not traveling with the team. Now he's got that it was reported as a foot then an ankle, but he's at least doing some stuff so maybe you know he could get back on the floor within the next couple of weeks and potentially ramp back up for the playoffs. In Indiana, Malcolm Brogdon has a torn rectus femoris. That's basically like your hip flexor. It's one of the quad muscles, but it's the one on top that when you're going to raise your knee up, flex your hip at a 90 degree angle, Uh, it's what does that. And so he is week to week with that there's uh some of the discussion of it'll be a pain tolerance thing I, I don't really like that when a muscle injury is involved that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because you need that muscle to actually move i've had that injury as I, as uh, so many and is uh it's not really pleasant it's hard like it's interesting because you can kind of there's a lot of things that you can do but then when you try to like really run fast that's when i mean it could be a different part of the muscle but when i had it i could jump just fine but when i tried to really like lift my leg up to run that's where and accelerate that's when i would really run into problems so you kind of need to do that if you're a nba basketball player
2: And it's been so frustrating that we haven't really gotten to see the Pacers fully together. It has been a successful season for them in a lot of ways, and I think Nate McMillan's done a great job there, but getting the chance to evaluate it all, especially with potential vanilla Depot extension, all that type of stuff. It would have been, would have been great this year. Uh, the carousel that continued moving in the kind of low end shooting guard move, it is pretty interesting. So in, in, Detroit, well, we'll start it with Jordan McRae. So Denver cut Jordan McRae to sign Troy Daniels, who had been cut by the Lakers so that they could sign Dion waiters. And it looked like jo- Phoenix wanted Jordan McRae and they, I, it sounds like they put in a yeah. waiver claim on him.
1: well, well it was supposedly a buyout even uh, of McRae, but uh, then it was like, well, you probably want to just claim him on waivers so you can get his early bird rights.
2: Exactly. And he's making the minimum, so it's not like it's that big a financial commitment, as long as that doesn't like push you into the tax or something like that. And so Phoenix wanted him, but Detroit had a stronger waiver claim and claimed him.
1: Yeah, and he'll uh certainly get some time with Luke Kennard still on the shelf there. And of course Denver did sign the aforementioned Troy Daniels. I mean, I just don't think he's gonna play at all, especially under a defensive focused coach like Mike Malone, but they did in theory their need is just a a bomber you know maybe they throw him in a game that they're down in the playoffs and see if he can shoot him back into it and for Chicago Lowry Marketing returned from that pelvic soreness, and he's been playing about 25 minutes a game. Otto Porter also on a minutes limit right now. And on Tuesday, long-awaited, uh, Kobe White is going to start at point guard. Thomas Sadaranski will move to the bench. Zach Levine not going to be back yet, but the Bulls might actually have their five most important players all on the floor at once. Porter is still coming off the bench. Maybe we'll see whether whether that changes. He said he's not concerned about starting right now. He's just trying to continue to string some games together and be healthy. Uh, Let's talk uh, Toronto and Utah here first.
2: Yeah, so the the Raptors were still missing some of their important players. Marcus Gasol didn't play due to that, be it being on a back-to-back after his hamstring return, Fred Van Vliet, and then they lost... Eastern Conference Player of the Week Norman Powell just two minutes in the game he had this rough collision with OG Ananobi he was kind of back they they, they kind of ran into each other and Ananobi is is a bigger person and also Powell landed awkwardly and was, one of the things that was so weird about it was I was watching live was you knew something bad like you knew something happened but you couldn't really figure out what it was whether it was back, abdomen, knee and it ended up being uh, I believe it was it's being reported as an ankle sprain for Norman Powell he did not return but they were still able Able to persevere to a 101-92 win in salt lake city on the tail end of a back-to-back
1: so patrick mccaw played 43 minutes off the bench in the absence of powell they just needed someone else to play some minutes at shooting guard matt thomas was about all they had uh, uh and i guess you know mccall was who they wanted rather than terrence davis and davis really struggled he was negative 15 in six minutes uh, as utah was able to get back into it uh, with their bench unit with mike conley running the show tony bradley at center ingles the minivan. Jordan in that group uh, looked pretty good against the Toronto backups
2: well and that was a parallel to their game against the Kings where, from what I recall Toronto's backups hemorrhage points then too but the starters were good enough that they ended up winning that one close
1: yeah I mean and uh so both Chris Boucher and Terrence Davis came in together played six minutes and both of them were negative 15 uh and uh were not asked to return by Nick Nurse and so uh, that's uh, that led to McCaw starting the second half and uh, play if he didn't play the whole second half it was almost all of it and he was well, plus 21 as well it was not bad
2: something i wanted to bring up was we talk a lot about how rim protectors that sure they can block shots and rebound and do do a lot of other things but one of the one of the things and gobert is a great example of this we talked about his deterrence and something i thought was so interesting is you know a game involving the utah jazz you think you're going to see you know you see those teams that have fewer shots of the rim and more shots in floater range or whatever the jazz at the Jazz offense had 20 shots at the rim and then had 18 floaters in this game.
1: Yeah, and they didn't make them. Nope. And Serge Ibaka was a huge part of that. They went with Hollis Jefferson at center, some as well, but it really, to me, Ibaka, especially late as, and OG Ananobi had a huge block on Rudy Gobert late as well as Utah was down three with a, about a minute left. Uh, that could have brought him within one. But I mean, they just really in the fourth quarter had trouble scoring around Ibaka. And Ibaka was fantastic in the playoffs last year, protecting the rim as well, both in that Milwaukee series and in the Golden State series. I mean, he's still a really good center and it largely has stayed healthy. You know, I know he's, he's uh, 30 years old, and there's speculation that, you know, that was not accurate that he's actually older than that but and it seemed like he had really gone downhill you know in the middle part of the decade but he's retained a lot of his value here and if he is older than 30 it hasn't mattered because he's still been a very solid starting center he's got some stretchability as well he's always gonna be a little stiff out there but I am uh, was very impressed by him tonight, and Utah, I mean, and that's generally Toronto's defense, they're kind of like a mini Bucks. they are pretty good at walling off the paint, they do allow more shots in the paint, but they allow a low percentage there, and then they also give up a ton of threes, not quite as many as the Bucks, but still many, and Utah is maybe the best spot-up shooting team in the NBA, and you could argue maybe even that they should have taken more threes like that Gobert play at the end. He had Royce O'Neal wide open in the corner to tie the game. And he instead tried to dunk it on, uh, and he was gobert seemed to be really upset with some calls he, he was not making the absolute best decisions out there towards the end and, and uh he got blocked by Ananobi, and that was basically the game with a minute left as toronto went back and, uh, and iced it on the other end how'd you feel about
2: utah's defense on siakam i mean for years now it feels like the old bugaboo has been those dominant forwards that the that the jazz have they have some trouble with those guys and siakam did have 27 on 21 shooting possession
1: yeah and he also was really driving a lot of the offense late like, yeah. uh, out of the post forcing double teams they they got some open threes as well and no I thought uh, Siakam in his 39 minutes was fantastic and they uh, Utah's been playing this roulette on the perimeter throughout the season and this time at the very end Bogdanovich actually went out they brought Royce O'Neal back in for defense but for most of crunch time O'Neal was out it was Conley Mitchell Ingles and Bogdanovich and there aren't great candidates in that group to guard Pascal Siakam and they were forced to double team, and then Toronto made him play. I mean, this was definitely an offensive loss for the Jazz, shooting 43% on twos, but that down the end, they really struggled to get a stop, and uh, I thought Siakam was really good. In that Kings game, they went to Siakam being screened for by Lowry to get mismatches. This time, it was more Siakam in the post, uh, and Lowry, I mean, this guy is completely insane. He played 43 minutes on the second night of a back-to-back. With uh, Powell being out, no Van Vliet, they don't have another backup point guard even available. You know, McCaw's kind of the backup point guard, and... He hit just a ridiculous three-pointer with the shot clock expiring. That that uh, was huge in Toronto pulling away from an eighty-five eighty-five tie midway through the, the fourth quarter. Well,
2: and his activity and passing lanes, I thought really made a difference yeah. at, at moments in time as well. And you know he was he was one of the things that swung that dynamic. I mean, the possession game in this one was fascinating. I mean, Utah had more live ball steals than they had turnovers. They had twelve steals and eleven turnovers, and then that, those were twelve of the eighteen that Toronto had, but. Well, the Raptors. One,
1: one more thing on the minutes here. Sure. Uh, you know, I was talking to Blake Murphy. The Raptors were in town last Thursday and I was like, Hey, Hey man, you enjoying the road trip? Like you get to kind of get to know these guys uh, outside of the home city. It's always, it's always better on the road. And he's like, they haven't had a single shooter around or practice. And that's basically what they've been doing all year. So that kind of puts into perspective some of the minute totals that these guys are playing where they are really, really trying to manage it in every possible way outside of the actual games. Will that actually work? Uh, we'll see. I mean, they've definitely had some guys with some muscle injuries and we'll see how much energy they have left to, when the playoffs come along. But with Boston struggling to a fourth straight home loss against OKC, Toronto is really in command now for that second seed improbably enough
2: yeah they they really are this and, was
1: another game that they probably wouldn't have been favored in that they won i mean to sweep that back-to-back against the kings and, and the jazz
2: and remember impressive. that there are two teams in the nba that have a persistent home court advantage irrespective of their their own quality at the time and that is the denver nuggets number one and the utah jazz number two the team that plays at the second highest altitude in the nba and to so to, to get that on the tail end of a back-to-back with the injuries is really impressive but so the other thing i want to bring up was offensive glass i mean the the, the raptors had 14 offensive rebounds seven Seven of which were by Ronde hollis jefferson in just his 22 minutes and this isn't you know this isn't the jazz team with with gobert and favors playing together and also they're they're thinner on the back on the second unit too i mean it was, it's really only tony bradley niang is not the greatest rebounder in the world for a for a backup four so yeah. it is it was ne- another reminder of that for me that you know the persistence and, and everything else that that can work better against utah than it has in prior years
1: yeah uh although i wouldn't blame the utah bench i mean they were really no. uh You know, Tony Bradley was plus 17 in in 16 minutes. I thought his pick and roll defense looked pretty good in this one, especially in the second quarter. He had a big block on OG Ananobi, had a nice, uh, soft hook shot. I mean, he's definitely looked better this year than I thought he had in him. And, you know, to the point now where, ed davis is uh, just a total afterthought i I don't know i mean he had that fracture he was playing poorly before that and i don't know if he's just done or you know whether he might actually be able to contribute if he had a chance but i they feel good enough about what bradley is giving them how is he going to look in the playoffs Uh, i don't know but he you know he didn't like if you squint hard and you don't look at the numbers he almost looks like he could be Gobert out there right if you're not (laughs) like really zooming in you know he's a big center He, he takes up some space in there uh he's an excellent offensive rebounder himself although he didn't do much in that regard in this game uh, I mean, where he really is not the same guy is, you know, just finishing around the rim, getting up for alley oops, uh, as you know, say a Derek Favors or, or just you know, normal finishing on the pick and roll. But I, you know, I thought he's he, he's grown to be adequate, uh, which is not what I would have thought from him. We were saying they should decline his option, and that's looking like uh, th- they made the right move to pick him up again.
2: Yeah, and I mean, it's, it was also the juxtaposition of doing that and also giving it giving it Davis two guaranteed years. But uh, it looks like having an insurance policy. I mean, granted, you can get a backup center. It's not that big a deal, but yeah, I, it looks a lot better now than it did then. Do you have anything else in this game, or do you want to talk about the the craziness that was the game in, in Atlanta?
1: Yeah, I, I got a couple other things here. Utah. With that second unit, actually was going to his zone, and it was interesting. It's somewhat similar to Miami. Now, Miami is kind of more of a almost a 3 2 look with Bam Adebayo playing in the center, like he's got free reign to roam around. It can be a little bit more matchup y, and you know, it could be more of a 2 1 2, a 2 3, but Adebayo can uh, has the ability to move around. The Jazz were looking more like a 2 3, but they it's similar to Miami in that they had the bigger guys up top in the zone, and then they had. Conley and Clarkson in the corners and so I think teams should try to take advantage of that with more size not even necessarily like you know posting those guys up but just to get a matchup of you know let's say it's Pascal Siakam uh, who was not in the game by the way I mean they went they went to the zone for a reason against Toronto's backups but to just try to get the ball with the pass over your three and your four man who are up top and then you can attack against the smaller guys along the baseline on the zone i think that should kind of be the idea uh, against those you know with miami it's like duncan robinson and dragich are the two guys along the baseline and so yeah. the, the idea is to prevent the ball from getting there but if you can advance the ball into like a short corner area with the pass you can really make some hay down there um and utah shot 43 percent from two they did take 43 three-point attempts they made 37 percent. that was fine but overall offensive rating 99 in this one donovan Mitchell was one out of ten on two pointers. He was uh, one of the big culprits in that difficult floater performance the six out of 18 Rudy Gobert couldn't get going at all he had one dunk he was negative 22 and Bogdanovich uh only had five points himself it, it was definitely a, an ugly performance for the Jazz uh, their first game back after that 5-0 and road trip against uh mostly the drugs of the East Although so they did have a nice win against Boston and so just, uh, again, it's been so much yo-yoing among these teams in the Middle East between Denver, Utah, OKC, Houston. All these teams have looked like world beaters at times and then gone on inexplicable losing streaks at other times.
2: Yeah, it'll be worth watching. Something else, this wasn't his best performance since returning, but Connolly is looking more like himself since this. You know, maybe it was yeah. just getting right physically was, was really all it took.
1: Yeah, he led that second unit, as we said. He, he also struggled from two, but three of seven from three and had seven assists in 34 minutes, which is a good number of minutes for him. All right, let's take another quick break here and we'll get to this uh, this Atlanta-Charlotte game, which I know you guys are probably thinking, ah, that's not going to be that great. I I mean, it was pretty enjoyable. I think, I think you're going to like hearing us talk about that one. Yeah, so this one was quite the yarn. 143, 138 in overtime. Atlanta led it at one point late in the fourth, 115, 106. John Collins was a monster all through this game. At one point was 11 of 11. Then in, in overtime spoiled that with a missed layup where he probably got followed by Bismack Biyombo. but then immediately popped off the floor to lay in his own miss. So he's, he's basically 12 of 12 from the field. And that, uh, at one point, he had tied the most number of makes by a Hawk ever without a miss. Uh, Dikembe Mutombo was 11 for 11 at, at one point in the late 90s. So, uh, And Collins finished with 28 points in 46 minutes. Interestingly, did not attempt a three-pointer, and they spent much of this game playing, actually, with Collins at center down the end. So the matchups uh, down the end and then in the overtimes so were really interesting, I thought.
2: They were, in the early going, because this was the only game on for the first two and a half quarters and what i kept on thinking was both these teams are bad at defense but in very different ways like the uh, hawks just didn't the hawks just straight up like didn't pay attention you know like they would just they would just lose guys oh for no man reason. there is
1: one one Devonte graham three where trey young is guarding him probably you know sort of like in the slot on the right side of the floor and Devonte just kind of moves around the arc all the way to the corner there was something happening on the right side of the floor but nothing that like directly involved trey where he needed to help and then he turns around as the ball is in the air and Devonte Graham's all the way in the left corner. Trey's like 25 feet away from him and Devonte just hits a left corner three. It was it was terrible. Trey also got bailed out a couple of times. They tried to post him up with Cody Martin and Martin went right through him but just missed the layup for a couple of times. Uh, so th- that could have looked really ugly.
2: Yeah and then, and then on the other side of the floor John Schumann had, had a video tweet about this. It was something I noticed live that there were some really basic miscommunications with with the Hornets defense, where they're like running, they're they're running a, a Trey Young John Collins pick and roll, not exactly an exotic set. And PJ Washington. Switches and Cherry Rosier doesn't switch, but also doesn't stay with Trey Young. He just stands between Trey Young and John Collins. Trey Young makes the pass to John Collins, and John Collins gets an easy basket. It's just like, well, what is this? Like, what what was going on? And Rosier was having a a wonderful offensive game early on. I think he had 15 in the first quarter, ended up with 40 on 15 and 26. Yeah, I mean, he was
1: quiet, and then he had a ridiculous run, hit two huge threes late in regulation, had a ridiculous step back to his right. To tie the game. Uh, I think that was in the first, o- at the end of the first overtime. Um, it was a uh, pretty impressive performance for Rosario. I mean, really a career game for him with his shooting 8 of 13. From three. Well,
2: and and the other hornet that had a career, at least a professional career game, as the broadcast talked about, was Caleb Martin. Caleb Martin had twenty three points on eight of ten from the yeah. field, five that's, of six. That's three. the
1: Martin twin who can shoot. Cody Martin is the the one who Martin plays twin defense. Who yeah, yeah, and Caleb Martin is getting more tick now. uh You know, he and they closed this game with the Martin twins out there. Basically, no PJ Washington. He came in like once. uh Yeah, he battled
2: a ton of foul trouble early in this game. He got two. Yeah. Fi- he got two fouls on John Collins in like two and a half minutes.
1: Yeah, and no Miles Bridges either. And we've seen actually uh, that game against I think it was San Antonio. It was also the Martin Twins closing things out. Well, so and, was, and
2: another another reason this game was totally ridiculous, Devonte Graham. I, I it looked to me like he had an ankle injury, not a severe one, but enough that it was affecting him.
1: Yeah, and, well, he he had missed the previous game.
2: Right. No, but he also an like, I think he, I think he, he oh he stepped on he stepped he stepped on John Collins' foot. Yeah, or John Collins stepped on his foot. One way or the other, like he didn't look right to me. I think that was in the second or third quarter, and they still put up a 127 offensive rating. And remember, this is the Hornets. This is not the offensive juggernaut. Though they do have some guys when Terry Rozier shoots eight of 13 from three that and and Caleb Martin has his best shooting game of his career too but I mean holy crap were these two teams bad at defense and that did lead to some really fun highlights yeah.
1: I mean uh, you, you didn't think that Cody Zeller uh fouling Travion Graham who shoots oh my under 30 percent from three for a, a three-shot foul was a good idea that I mean, that wasn't something I mean, you'd, you would suggest I, I, I put suggest? Travion
2: Graham on the potential targets for 15 teams on the the offseason previews a few times it was not because of his shooting prowess <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that that might be the last time he gets fouled in a three-shot foul in his career.
2: I, I don't know if those teams play again. That would be the ne- the next best chance. But yeah, there was there were some nice performances. Um, you know, Trey had sixteen assists and had some real some real beautiful beauties as well. Some nice ones to John Collins, just like over the defense because there was really no defense. Reddish had a few had hit a few nice shots. Um, he was eight of fourteen from the field. Also, a weird game in that Trey Young had a chance to ice it in regulation. He had oh yeah, yeah.
1: Shots. Let's can I, can I just go through the sequence there? Sure. Uh so
2: oh, there was so much weirdness.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mentioned Hawks are up nine with like four minutes left. Rozier goes on this crazy run. All of a sudden they're up by one. Hornets are. Trey Young gets a fast break, finds John Collins for an alley oop with about 15 seconds left. And Brigo calls timeout and elects to have Devontae Graham bring the ball up and just like run the time down. And he ends up going with maybe about eight seconds left drives into John Collins, picks up a foul. Lloyd Pierce only had one timeout left because the Hornets had previously denied the ball in bounced to the Hawks and they had to take one that they didn't want to take at an earlier point. So he couldn't challenge it probably would have lost it, but you would think if he wasn't worried about losing the timeout, he could have challenged it. Um, Then Graham hits both free throws Hornets up one Hawks have five seconds left. They get into Trey young. He's just going to go one-on-one against Cody Martin, who in theory is their best defender. And with 1.8 seconds left, Martin reaches in and just fouls Trey young and they're in the bonus, just an asinine foul. Just stay in front of him as best you can. Don't reach in and Trey young hits the first and then bricks the second. And it, it goes into overtime, which was, uh, was not great uh, for, uh, either young or the hornets <laughs> for that matter but well and th- and then there was the weird play at the end of the first overtime when oh this was fantastic yeah
2: so there's not much time left, and Terry Rozier is dri- is driving past past Travion Graham.
1: Yeah, in a tie game.
2: They in a tie game, and they both go down as time expires. And so you're like, okay, second overtime. You know, whatever. And and then they initially whistle it as a foul on on Graham, and that the foul, yeah. and they were reviewing it to see whether the foul occurred before the end of regulation, because obviously once the once the game is once the qu- overtime is over, you. Can commit a fel and they ruled that it did occur before that, but then <laughs> Lloyd Pierce challenged that ruling and won correctly.
1: Yeah, it was a off-arm push-off from Rozier that then caused Graham to go down. I thought initially that they called Graham for, he basically like kind of dove on the floor after he got knocked down or tripped and that that he then tripped Rozier. I thought the contact that happened with Rozier was after the buzzer but they said no the the contact was earlier and they put 0.8 left on the clock after which pierce challenged and said no the whole thing started with rosier hooking graham and it was it was a great call but then trey young missed a floater he actually got wide open uh with a one second left uh, but i think he got a shot off late and they, they went into double overtime but finally the hawks uh, were able to pull away in the double OT well and
2: and part of the reason they were able to pull away in double overtime was because of another bad foul on a three-point shooter this time it was on DeAndre Hunter and you know it was it was a late close and it was it was the it was correctly called you know I'm not saying it was they
1: did did, they did the Hornets did the thing that we're always advocating for you more than me of the Hawks it's a tie game they're trying to run the time down and they decided to trap them and pressure up and force them to attack early which Kevin Herter did he found Hunter in the corner and hunter took a three with 13 seconds left i was like what are you doing especially because you don't need a three at that point and but then he got fouled which uh, did you agree with that call by the way
2: i did uh caleb martin caught him in the uh caught him in the forearm i didn't see it okay. on the first on the first blush but he hit him he hit him pretty cleanly on the forearm and i don't think he got like ball before that or anything like that would that would justify the contact
1: yeah. So he hits all three free throws and then Hornets didn't score and, and Hawks hit hit two more free throws to ice it and, and win it uh, by five. But yeah, that was all. It, it was very interesting at the end. The other thing that I thought was pretty interesting was it was John Collins at center. Hornets were largely playing Bismack Biombo at center, but neither center was guarding the other because they wanted to set pick and roll. So they had Collins hiding out on Cody Martin, the one who can't shoot at all, but plays a lot of defense. And then they had Biombo hiding out on Cam Reddish. Reddish came off the bench in this one. He had had uh, cramps in their previous game, but he came off the bench for 40 minutes, 22 points, eight of 14, uh, had a huge play late where in the first overtime where he cut down the lane when Trey Young was trapped and got a dunk. But He was being guarded by Biambo. Couldn't really make him pay other than that. And and Cody Martin wasn't going to make Collins play either. I thought Collins had some moments defensively. I mean, again, this isn't the greatest opposition in the world, but he actually had some nice verticality plays at the rim. You know, baby steps defensively from him. Um, but neither team really was any good at attacking the switches other than just going one-on-one. In particular, I thought Trey Young, as good of a passer as he is, he missed John Collins slipping to the rim a number of times out of those switches, getting behind the defense, and Trey just didn't see him. Maybe that's the, the, it's a more of a difficult pass for him due to his height. Could be.
2: He had one where he just arced it all the way in, but that was the exception rather than the rule on those types of passes. Uh, all right, we done here? Anything else you want to talk about? No, I, I think that's it for right now.
1: All right, well, we'll be back tomorrow. Going to do power forward rankings is the plan right now as we lead up to the top 10 players
0: in the NBA. Looking forward to that one. So we'll talk to you all tomorrow night. Till then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-point at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line.